0: If you are visiting with us for the first time this morning, I just want to say uh, again, good morning and welcome. My name is Scott, and I am one of the pastors here in South Baton Rouge. Uh, we have been looking at the New Testament book of Acts, and this morning we are continuing to look at that, um, looking starting with uh, verse 18 of chapter 18 and going through to the end of that chapter. This book of the Bible is uh, is the record, amongst other things, it is a record, uh, really the history book in many ways, of the earliest days of the church, and the section that we are currently in is surveying the highlights of Paul's uh, second missionary journey. Paul made a number of, the Apostle Paul made a number of uh, tours of duty, you could call it, through that whole region of the world, Uh, and uh, this is his second missionary journey, Uh, If you were with us last week, then you may remember me saying that it is this journey in particular that God used to establish the church in Europe, which in time uh, became the base from which the gospel was eventually carried to every continent on the planet, including our own. It's the reason why you and I received the gospel uh, in our own day. Now, In our look at the passage just prior to this one, we saw how the Corinthian church was Established And how that seems to have been part, the, the Corinthian work was part of a, a deliberate effort by Paul to, to target the leading cities uh, in pretty much every region to which he traveled. So we've already seen him, for example, in Athens, which was a leading city. We've seen him in Corinth. And this morning we're going to see him making his first contact with yet another leading city back in the day, and that is the city of Ephesus. Uh, and his first encounter here admittedly will be brief, but he will soon return and, uh, and spend the majority of his, really his third missionary journey there in Ephesus. And so uh, with that as an introduction, uh, before we look at that, I want to pray for our time together, and then we'll dive into the passage. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you again that you are our Father, and that you have shown and you daily show that to us in all kinds of ways, including in and through the provision of your Word, which is a sure guide to us. Uh, That being the case, would you help us now to approach this time as the gift and opportunity uh, that it is? Help us to, to hear you speaking to us in and through your Scriptures. Use your truth to to tear down things that ought not be present in our minds and hearts and lives. And then please use the same truth to put in place things that are missing or repair things that are broken. Whatever has to be done to mold us into the image of your Son, whom you have promised, we will one day perfectly reflect. Please use this time today to bring us closer to that reality. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Grant, I don't know if the the monitors are off up here, but if you could if they're not, if you could pull those back, that would be helpful. Thank you. If you have a Bible, you may want to turn now to the book of Acts, chapter 18, starting with verse 18. If not, you can uh, follow along with the verses printed in your bulletin. And let me encourage you to really listen carefully at this point because uh, while the things that I say are flawed and incomplete, and you've got to weigh them and and check them out and things like that, what I'm about to read to you is God's word, and so this is God speaking to us, and this is uh, this will be the only perfect thing you hear this morning. After this, Paul stayed many days longer, and then took leave of the brothers and set sail for Syria, and with him Priscilla and Aquila. At King Cray, he had cut his hair. For he was under a vow. And they came to Ephesus and he left them there, uh, that is Priscilla and Aquila. But he himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to stay for a longer period, he declined. But on taking leave of them, he said, I will return to you if God wills. And he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. After spending some time there, he departed and went from one place to the next to the region of Galatia and Phrygia, strengthening all the disciples. Well, after at least, you know, at least a year and a half in Corinth, uh, establishing the church there and then building up the Christians, Paul eventually uh, decided it was time to move on. It's one of the few times he actually got to make the decision himself rather than being sort of driven out of town. But he decided it was time to move on. And so he did. However, he did not go from Corinth into any new territory, but in fact began to make his way back to where he started, towards Syria, as the passage indicates, which if you look at a map is where Caesarea was located there on the coast, and which itself was very close to Jerusalem. In other words, Paul has now come, he's coming full circle, and he's kind of drawing this second missionary journey to a close. The ship that Paul boarded at its first port of call on the way to Syria stopped in Ephesus, which is kind of just across the Aegean Sea, uh, the first place you come to, uh, from Corinth. And Paul apparently disembarked there briefly before continuing his journey southeast across the Mediterranean. However, while he was in Ephesus, he did what he always does. His usual practice was to go to the local synagogue to reason with the Jews, as he had done so many times before to try and persuade them that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah. And surprisingly, while this uh, same approach that he'd taken a number of times now in other places had typically not been received very well, uh, in Ephesus at least, in this initial encounter, the response actually was markedly better. Instead of throwing Paul out or setting upon him right away, the Jews in Ephesus actually urged Paul to stay longer. They wanted to hear more, not unlike the attitude amongst the Athenians. And then, as surprising as that was, something even more surprising happens. Uh, Paul declines the offer. He doesn't decline it altogether. He does promise them that he'll return if the Lord wills, which we'll say more about in a moment. But he does decline the initial offer. Now, why in the world... Why in the world would Paul do that? I mean, this is a man who has received rejection after rejection after rejection from his Jewish brothers and sisters. And now he gets at least an interested uh, initial response, and yet he turns down the invitation to stay longer. Why does Paul do this? And the answer simply is, um, you know, we don't know for sure why he does it. There's some theories among scholars out there, but at the end of the day, we can't say for certain. Something was compelling him to make a return trip back to home base, at least briefly, before he could continue with his missionary enterprise. What was it? Well, with the opening qualification that everything we might say on this matter is speculation, uh, I do agree uh, with those that say that there is a clue in the passage which some writers have noted, and which might make sense of Paul's movements. And as I'll suggest later on, might also point to what God was doing in a bigger picture uh, through all of this. The clue that the passage gives is found in verse 18. At King Cray, he had cut his hair, for he was under a vow. That's it. There's your clue. Uh, now, Luke it doesn't explicitly tell us what sort of vow this is or why Paul took it, but the fact that it involved the cutting of hair uh, does narrow the options in terms of the Old Testament, and it may indicate that it was a Nazarite vow that Paul took. What is a Nazarite vow? One scholar explains it like this Jews made vows to God, um, either in thankfulness for past blessings, such as Paul's safekeeping while he was in Corinth or as part of a petition for future blessings, such as safekeeping on his upcoming journeys. Paul appears to have taken a temporary Nazarite vow, which involved a lot of things, including uh, abstinence from alcohol, um, not cutting your hair, and avoiding ritual uncleanness until the period of the vow was fulfilled. In addition, the person taking the vow would need to complete the vow by offering a sacrifice in Jerusalem assuming he's following the law and tradition. So here's Paul having taken upon himself some sort of vow, not because he had to, but because he chose to, and likely doing so as an expression of thankfulness to God and or a petition for continued protection and blessing. And actually judging from the timing of this, uh, he may well have entered into this vow and actually maintained this vow throughout his entire time in Corinth, It's 18 plus months that he was there. And he may have done that, he may have entered into this vow precisely because, as we've already seen, Corinth was an intense place. Corinth was an intimidating place to minister. He says in his letter that he was there with weakness and fear and much trembling. And so, humanly speaking, it is a place that Paul actually would have fled when things heated up if it had not been for the fact that God directly said to him, don't do that, Don't, don't, don't leave this time. Stick around, I'm going to take care of you. I've got a lot of people in this place. And so it seems reasonable to, to conjecture that as an expression of trust and thankfulness, Paul took up this vow and especially de- dedicated himself to this season of challenging ministry in Corinth. And you know, the abstaining from alcohol and from cutting his hair and maintaining ritual cleanness, all that stuff that went along with this vow, if it was a Nazarite vow, but all those things, you know, as he's observing them, would serve as reminders, such that you know, every time he brushed up against them in the course of his day or in his thoughts, uh, he would have been brought to; they would have brought to mind this vow he'd taken, and then that would drive him back to the Lord in his heart and mind, refocusing him all over again on the task at hand. Particularly, I assume, in prayer. You know, and it seems to me that there are parallels between Paul's taking this vow and. Uh, something a little closer to some of us here, and that is the practice of fasting, for example. Both of those are things, the taking of vows or fasting, they're things that are not required, but which might voluntarily be entered into during a season in which one wanted to be especially, especially focused in prayer or in waiting upon the Lord concerning some particular matter. And just as the abstention from alcohol and from cutting one's hair were reminders uh, during the terms of the Nazarite vow, In fasting, the abstention from food serves a similar purpose. You actually are using your hunger pangs as a reminder, as a tool to prompt you again and again to return to the Lord, to fix your attention and devotion upon him, to remain prayerful about a particular matter, etc. So again, we don't know for certain, but it seems likely that the vow that Paul took might have worked in that sort of way. It was a kind of spiritual exercise, not unlike fasting, and was very possibly either a Nazarite vow or else a modified version of one taken during this difficult season of ministry. That may be what's going on here. And if that understanding or that reconstruction is correct or largely correct, uh, I think it helps to explain how and why Paul acted as he did in this passage. Because if the view is right, then when Paul finished up in Corinth, he would have also finished up the time period of keeping this vow. And so for this particular vow, since you abstain from cutting your hair as part of keeping it, you signal the completion of the end of the vow by going ahead and finally cutting your hair or shaving off your hair, which then later on, the cut hair became part of a burnt offering that you made at the temple in Jerusalem. And if this is what was going on, it may explain why Paul, in spite of his receiving a good response from the Jews in Ephesus, felt compelled basically to take a rain check and turn down their initial offer to stay and speak to them more about Jesus. Why? Because he was still completing his vow. Paul was not only, he's not one to make a vow lightly, so he had to get to Jerusalem to offer the necessary sacrifices in order to wrap up the whole thing, including the sacrifice of his hair. Now, of course, this raises the whole question, doesn't it? Would post-conversion Paul do such a thing? Would he make a sacrifice to complete a vow? And if so, why? why would he do it? Well, to be sure, because he understood perfectly well that Jesus had fulfilled the law, Paul's approach to the Old Testament in general and to things like making sacrifices in particular, but his approach to those things, of course would have been greatly affected by the sweeping changes that Jesus' death and resurrection brought about and Jesus' own teaching about these things. So, for example, with regard to this Nazarite vow, which is described, it's described in Numbers chapter 6, by the way, but in this vow, it involved making sin offerings and burnt offerings. With regard to all of that, of course, Paul would have understood that sin offerings were no longer needed because of Jesus. And yet... Even with that understanding, he may well have made some sort of offering, perhaps just offering up the hair that he cut off, not as a sin offering, but as a kind of thank offering, something that would have meaning for him personally uh, and symbolically. He may have done it for those reasons, but he may have done it for an additional reason. He may have done it to show that he still valued his Jewish heritage, even as he understood it now in a whole new light because of the Lord Jesus One writer thinking about Paul's actions here and this possibility has this to say. He says, Paul voluntarily continued certain Jewish practices because he did not see them to be inconsistent with his new status in Christ. It was a way for Paul to demonstrate his trust in God and show loyalty to the traditions of Israel without compromising the gospel message. Perhaps, says this writer, this is the key of what he's saying. He says, perhaps such gestures allowed Paul to speak more freely and be received more readily by his fellow Jews. He's showing them, I don't despise my heritage. And isn't this what Paul himself says, 1 Corinthians chapter 9? For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. Jews. There's way too much here to try and unpack, but it may well be that, along with his own personal reasons for entering into this vow during an especially challenging season of ministry, Paul may have also done this so that he could demonstrate to his fellow Jews that he had not just thrown away their traditions, uh, which he'll be accused of actually later on, but in fact, he had continued with them in a fuller and richer way through Jesus Christ. And his doing that might then gain him a better hearing. For the sake of the kingdom, with the result that some of his Jewish brothers and sisters might be saved. And that was always, that was always on Paul's heart. He was always up for that. Now I know there's a lot of explanation and conjecture, but I think it's helpful. Not only for understanding what may be going on in this passage, but also for making sense of some things that will take place later on. In Acts 21, when we get there, there, there's going to be an identical situation that arises in Acts 21 involving the making and completing of vows. And Paul's more obvious actions there are completely in line with the actions and attitudes that are not as obviously on display here but which I think are part of the background. And so here's Paul with all of that going on, telling the Ephesians that he's unable at the moment to accept their offer to speak further about the Lord Jesus. But he doesn't just abandon them. He doesn't, you know, leave them hanging. He does two things in response to their invitation, one which we've already seen and one which we haven't. Firstly, as we've already seen, he promises them that if the Lord wills, he would return to them. Now, it may seem like a small thing, but I I think that statement, that little phrase, if the Lord wills, is uh, important for a couple of reasons. It's important simply because by making it, Paul signals to the Ephesians that he's very much interested in responding to them. He has every intention of doing so. Their questions matter to him. Their response matters to him. And he wants them to know that. At the same time, this statement matters not only because of what he says, but because of how or the way that it signals Paul's humility. And the truth that fuels that humility, that is Paul's understanding of God's sovereignty over everything that Paul said and did, as God's apostle. You might recall how in Acts chapter 16, Paul's traveling around. Do you remember this? At one point, he decides he wants to go into Asia and carry out his ministry there. But the passage tells us that when he tried to do this, he was prevented by the Holy Spirit from doing so. So, what did Paul do? Well, he hit the brakes. He hit the brakes, he turned in another direction, he took that, and then he took after that going in this new direction, he took the lack of further communication from the Holy Spirit as an indicator that he was now going in the right direction. Please notice how in that situation it is the silence of the Holy Spirit that communicates as much as his speech. And so it was that Paul learned and or was reminded once again by these events that he might make his plans and he might move forward. He might do all that he liked. But at the end of the day, he was always and gladly at the mercy of God's leading in all that he did, however that leading might be conveyed, either directly or providentially. As Proverbs nineteen twenty one puts it, many are the plans in the minds in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. Paul understood that, and so he makes his promise to return, but qualifies it with if the Lord wills. And it's kind of a side note to this, although not much of a side note. You know, Paul's use of that phrase tells you another thing. I think uh, not only does it show Paul's humility, it also tells you that Paul didn't have, nor did he act like he had, uh, a hotline to God. Uh, Paul didn't have this spelled out, detailed description of what sort of steps he would be taking every moment of his day. He, He never would have said, if the Lord wills. If he had some sort of sustained access to that kind of direct guidance, he wouldn't be using those phrases. But he didn't. Paul didn't have, Paul did not have turn by turn instructions from God. Yes, sometimes God stepped in and did something extraordinary, but that was not the norm. The norm was Paul getting up, putting his feet on the floor, simply moving forward day by day, faithfully doing what he was called to do making decisions all day long using the scriptures as his guide using the gifts he'd been given the natural endowments that he had uh, been given and the providential circumstances in front of him all of those things were his resources in going through his day and as Paul was moving forward in this manner he trusted that the Lord would and actually was guiding him in the midst of all this one way or the other as the old saying goes it's hard to steer a parked car or in Paul's language, a parked chariot. But whatever the case, Paul understood that truth. It is hard to steer a parked car. And so Paul, as he moved forward, he did, uh, he, he did move forward. Uh, uh, he didn't just sit around waiting for special guidance from God. He had more than enough clear guidance already at his disposal. And so Paul was up, paying attention to his circumstances, ready to be flexible if necessary, but making the most of the moment. Using the tools that were already in his hand. God's word, his mind, his heart, and his companions. The very same resources that you and I have. Exact same resources that we have. So Paul promises that he fully intends to make his way back to Ephesus, but he does so with humility, knowing that all of his plans are just that, are plans And he can and he should make them in hope, absolutely, but he has to hold on to them loosely. Always ready to let his plans take a back seat to God's purposes. But that's not all that Paul does. He doesn't just promise to return. He leaves them in the very capable hands of his two fantastic companions and ministerial colleagues, Priscilla and Aquila. Now, a Jew named Apollos, a native of Alexandria, came to Ephesus. He was an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. He had been instructed in the way of the Lord, and being fervent in spirit, he spoke and taught accurately the things concerning Jesus, though he knew only the baptism of John. He began to speak boldly in the synagogue, but when Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him the way of God more accurately. That's fascinating. So while Paul was away, completing his vow, and and as the passage indicates, also using that opportunity to go around to various places where the previous gospel works had been established and encourage them. But while all that's going on, Paul's away. Meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, Priscilla and Aquila were holding down the fort in Ephesus until Paul returned. And it's in the midst of these circumstances, while Aquila and Priscilla are on their own, that a man named Apollos shows up in Ephesus, and as Paul's letter to the Corinthians will demonstrate, this, this man will prove to be a powerful and effective witness for the gospel down the road. But even at this point, when we first hear about him, he already has a reputation for being an eloquent man, competent in the scriptures. Luke says he's from Alexandria, which, as one scholar has noted, is the place in which one of the earliest complete collections of the Old Testament a document called the Septuagint was produced in Greek about 350 years or so before the events that took place in his passage. Alexandria was also the home of a 400,000-volume library, which was unparalleled in the ancient world. And so, uh, in other words, Alexandria historically was a place with some pretty high-powered scholarship in general, and Bible scholarship in particular and this is where Apollos is from this is where he cut his teeth at any rate Apollos comes into town already converted already engaged in a powerful ministry of explaining the scriptures and the passage tells us that he'd been instructed in the way of the Lord which I take to mean the gospel that he was fervent in spirit and that he taught accurately the things concerning Jesus so you know all the important boxes are checked here with Apollos and yet the passage tells us there was a problem at least, with one aspect of his understanding, the fact that he knew only the baptism of John. Now lots of ink has been spilled in an attempt to work out exactly what Apollos's theological misunderstanding here was all about. Uh, we could go into a discussion of some of the options, but you've already patiently indulged me in one lengthy explanation, and I won't do that to you twice in the same morning. Not even me. I won't do that to you. Um, but really, at the end of the day, It isn't all that important that we know exactly what the problem was. Because I think the more important thing to see here is not so much the theological issue at stake, but rather uh, the way that it got taken care of. Namely, through the wise, timely intervention and instruction of this husband and wife team, Aquila and Priscilla. I think that's much more significant. As we think about this couple's ministry, there are several things worth highlighting. You know, for one thing, it's worth noting that it's precisely because of Paul's absence, you know, to go complete his vow and pay these follow-up visits. But it's because of his absence, providentially speaking, that Priscilla and Aquila are in this situation, ministering on their own in Ephesus, and we get to see how God used them, because Paul is out of the picture I think God set this up for us. And so how did they do? In a word, they did wonderfully. They did marvelously. Here we have a portrait of two strong believers in the same sort of occupation as Paul. They were tent makers. They were engaged in part-time ministry, as Paul was at times, and yet used in clear and obvious ways to both spread the gospel and build up other believers. We see their usefulness in spreading the gospel in the comment made in verse 27, where when Apollos is ready to move on from Ephesus to this place called Achaia, it says, "The brothers," meaning, the Christians in Ephesus wrote a letter of recommendation on Apollo's behalf. Where do these brothers come from? Well, they must have come from the ministry of Aquila and Priscilla." And further, we see their usefulness in building up other believers, especially highlighted through their interactions with Apollos. You know they hear him preach in the synagogue. And they heard him say, no doubt, many great things, even brilliant things. But they also heard him say some things that were not quite right in terms of the doctrine he was teaching. Again, we don't know exactly what it, it was or how it related to the baptism of John. But whatever it was, it was enough to get Priscilla Nicola's attention. He was obviously saying helpful things. The passage said he taught accurately the things of Jesus. But there was room for improvement. There was room for instruction. Something was off. Something was missing. So Aquila and Priscilla wisely, with discretion, not in front of everybody, they pull him aside and they instruct him so that he would continue teaching, but do so more accurately than he had before, as verse 26 says. More accurately. He knew it accurately. Now he's doing it more accurately. And just that little interchange right there between Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos, that scene tells us so much. It tells us something about how God can and does use his people. People with nine to five jobs, people not engaged in full-time ministry, but people with a deep love for the Lord. It shows how God uses his people to engage in significant and powerful ministry. Priscilla and Aquila, this man and this woman, both were used in the life of Apollos, who then turned around and was used by God to influence untold numbers of people in the early church. This little scene also tells us something about the preparation that had to have taken place in the lives of Aquila and Priscilla. I mean, here's Apollos, right? He's a brilliant orator and with profound understanding of the scriptures. And yet, Priscilla and Aquila are the ones instructing him on this particular issue, whatever it was. They were grounded enough, they were established enough to be able to listen to Apollos' teaching, appreciate all the good things, and yet at the same time have the discernment to see where he was getting off the rails, where he needed some instruction, better, clearer teaching and understanding. They knew in a way that many do not today, that truth matters. Doctrine, which seems to be some people's swear word in the church these days, honestly, but doctrine matters. Rightly understanding a thing is important. Aquila and Priscilla knew this. They saw what Apollos needed and then they provided it humbly and lovingly and clearly. Which then highlights the other thing I want you to see is how Apollos responded to Priscilla and Aquila's ministry. It's a beautiful thing to behold. Because in spite of the fact that here he was, this gifted orator, clearly brilliant, clearly possessing a deep grasp of scriptures, probably deeper than their own in many ways, in spite of all that, there were problems. There were deficiencies in his understanding. He was brilliant and he was wrong. And this then is what makes his response stand out that much more. He apparently received their instruction willingly, with humility, not too proud to learn. Not too arrogant to admit that he was wrong, that he needed instruction. And that kind of thing, when you get a chance to watch it played out, is beautiful and rare. When you stand back and you take in the whole view here, you see this encouraging partnership in the gospel. Priscilla and Aquila providing initially employment for Paul when he gets to Corinth. And then they partner with him in his ministry. And then they pack up their bags and they go with him to Ephesus staying behind to continue the work in his absence while he goes along doing some other things, and then coming alongside Apollos and then commissioning him on to further ministry in Achaia and beyond is a wonderful partnership. It's a great picture of what local ministry can be and look like. And at the end, Luke provides this summary of the outcome of Apollos' ministry, which must have been also a great encouragement to Priscilla and Aquila. When he arrived in Achaia... He greatly helped those who through grace had believed. For he powerfully refuted the Jews in public, showing by the scriptures that the Christ was Jesus. You know, Priscilla and Aquila's efforts at encouraging Apollos, you know, in the true biblical sense of encouragement, which is edification, to build up. But their, their, their efforts in that area were soon multiplied in this, this harvest of ministry to others who were greatly helped. And and, uh, who are wonderfully described as those who through grace had believed. Oh, that God might use each of us in just that sort of way. Please pray with me. Father, we thank you that of all the things that you preserved for us in your scriptures, you you always preserve those things that are are most needful and would be most needful for your church uh, through the ages. And so we land today on the doorstep of Acts 18, 18 and following. And Father, this is a word we need and I pray that you would work this into our minds and hearts into the way that we think about our life and our days and our hours and our months and years. We think about our ministry, our place in your kingdom and your your agenda. Father, would you inspire us with this example of our brothers and sisters of our brother and sister Priscilla and Aquila, ways that you use them in a a mighty fashion Uh, and yet a a humble fashion, a steady fashion a plodding fashion even but uh, we're now now talking about their story uh, because of what you did through them. Father, would you please use us in similar ways uh, to draw people to yourself to build people up to encourage as well as to correct and rebuke and exhort as those things are needed. And by all of those means, would you continue to establish this work which we have received from their hands. The baton is with us. Uh, Help us to go further down the track and continue to hand that off until you come back. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. take a minute now to um, take up an offering to support the ministry of this church and various other individuals and organizations that we support together as a congregation.